Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine, and thank you for listening to the Captain's Collective podcast, brought to you by Skinny Water Culture, Costa Sunglasses, All Hands Vodka, Turtle Box Audio, and Orvis Fly Fishing. As we kick off a new year, I found it fitting to dive into some new territory and learn about something I essentially know nothing about, walleye. As a Florida native, I've not had too much exposure to this northern game fish, but for as long as I can remember, I've heard tales and stories about their lure. Today's guest, Johnny Candle, is more than familiar with this style of fishing, as someone who has clocked in over three decades of professionally fishing for them. I leaned into this opportunity to learn more about the waters that he loves. I also picked his brain on how he approaches new opportunities in fishing as someone who's guided professionally in over five states and is currently easing his way into the saltwater game. Johnny is a world champion walleye fisherman and an expert in marine electronics and just an all-around insightful angler. I hope that you enjoy our time together and have a great new year on the water. Hang around after this interview to hear a special recording with Florida folk artist Leon Meitzen, who chipped in on some background guitar and harmonica that you'll be hearing this season of the podcast. We hope that you enjoy. Thank you for listening. This is the Captain's Collective. I'll say it's anything you choose, I think it picks you. You know, it's genetic. Let everything else stop in the world and just be quiet. And it's amazing where your mind goes at that point um, and where it doesn't go. And sometimes just that quiet space is, is what we need, and especially in this day and age. You have a fly rod in your hand. It's this tool that takes you to beautiful places. You meet hopefully wonderful people. And it's just this cherry on top of this outdoor adventure. When the fish is coming, that shot within a shot, that timer starts. No one else knew anything anyway, and you're just might definitely making it up if you're going along. But so what Grandpa and Dad would tell me is like, all right, where's the old big trout laying out there? Where's his shaving cream on the water? Where's he been shaving this morning? That's look for his shaving cream on the water, and that's where he's gonna be. Well, hey, Johnny, thanks so much for hanging out and joining us on the podcast as my first walleye, a guy with a walleye background, um, and as somebody who's never caught a walleye. We're going to have to fix that. We got to fix that. We got to fix that. For sure. Um, But looking forward just to hearing a little bit more about kind of how you got into fishing and your background and also with you being down here in the Forgotten Coast, kind of what it's been like for you to take all the building blocks that you've learned in your extensive career in freshwater and walleye fishing and and to bring it into the saltwater world so thanks for carving out some time tonight and hanging out and and uh really enjoyed it so far and would just first love to hear about for you where all this began and kind of get us to where you are today with your multi-piece business model (laughs) well i'd like to say that the fishing started for me like it does for everybody else but the more i'm in this business the more i learn as it starts different for everybody right Mm -hmm. it just does uh very very fortunate to grow up in a family that had fishaholics right my my father when he wasn't at his day job was fishing somewhere and his father was fishing somewhere and uh, even cousins and and uncles and aunts and even my mom was not afraid to pick up a fishing rod and go fish with us Uh, Mm. i'm not going to say she was the driving force that took me to the lake every day but uh, having a dad that that uh, 
I was fortunate enough to look up to as a god, right? He mm -hmm. had an S on his chest. I don't care what anybody tells me. I still say it was tattooed there. And anything he did, I wanted to do. And, mm -hmm. and he was good enough and gracious enough to drug me along. And I know it drove him absolutely crazy when mm -hmm. I was five and six and seven years old, right? But he dragged me along and, and I got the bug and mm -hmm. I was good at it. I had, I had success because my father and even my grandfather, uh, they made sure I had success, right? They mm -hmm. didn't set me up for failure. And of course I loved playing sports through high school and, and even into college. I dabbled with a little bit of basketball in my college days, but fishing was always that thing that I came back to and I could pick up a rod and make a cast and catch a fish and have success. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't care how good I got at basketball. I still missed, right? Mm -hmm. I don't care how good I was at football. I still threw interceptions, but when I went fishing, and had a five gallon pail, it usually came home with something in it. So mm -hmm. I gravitated to what I love to do. When I was a senior in high school, my father decided that uh, he'd taken his buddies fishing for free long enough in his life. And he said, I'm going to get a charter captain's license. Mm. Grew up in Northeast Ohio, Lake Erie, walleye capital of the world. Dad goes out, buys a 28 foot charter boat. We deck it out with all this equipment and it's okay, let's go fish. We're like, well, we know how to catch them, but we really don't know much about running a business, dad. We mm -hmm. were fishermen. Well, it happened to be that I went off to college the next year and decided to major in marketing. And what a lucky stroke for my dad that every college project I did was for his charter business, right? Mm -hmm. I had a built-in case study right there. Yeah. So my dad got a four-year marketing course for his charter business. And we grew his business from nothing to something. And I was a big part of that. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed the business side. I enjoyed the fishing side. Graduate from college at 23 years old. Typical red-blooded American male wants to see what's out there in the world. And I'm flipping through some magazines, reading about these walleye fishing tournaments. And I'm like, wow, we catch a lot of fish. I might as well try this. So I literally jumped in with both feet and said, I'm going to go be a pro walleye fisherman and got my backside handed to me badly. Mm -hmm. I mean, badly, right? You don't go from one body of water fishing one technique 80% of your life to jumping in and traveling to Minnesota and Wisconsin and the Dakotas and fishing rivers and reservoirs. I had never seen the Mississippi River in my life, let alone fish on it. My first pro tournaments on the Mississippi River. Mm -hmm. I got shellacked. Uh, but there were moments of brilliance. And again, back to my father, came home after that first season, flat, broke, not a nickel left in my name, a truck that needs thousands of dollars of repair, a boat that's not tournament worthy, and I'm ready to quit. And mm -hmm. my dad said, you're not quitting. He wouldn't let me. I'm like, well, I need the money. We'll figure out the money. Well, I gotta have the, we'll figure it out. You're not quitting. Go get a job, get through the winter make what you can make. We'll figure all this out. And like I said, very, very fortunate to have a father that mm -hmm. was that big of a driving force in my life and pushed me and pushed me and pushed me. And well, man, fast forward to today, how many times did I want to quit over the years, right? I, I'm not competing at the right level or my fishing struggling, or I'm spending too much time tournament fishing and my guide business is failing and this and that, and this is that. Mm -hmm. And finally catch enough breaks along the way and meet enough of the right people and build a good network. It, Let's see, that was uh, 1994 I fished my first pro tournament and mm -hmm. retired from that 
just this last year now to get out of that scene and retire more or focus more on setting myself up for real retirement and mm-hmm. just guiding now full time. So uh, that's kind of the short version, Hunter. You, yeah. you can ask more about any phase you want, but I think that gives you a pretty good background, right? I, I mean, I fished hundreds of days a year since I was 12 years old. I yeah, mean, that's just the way it goes. I want to kind of get to go into some of those different seasons of life that you went through, but back to you being fresh out of college in the tournament scene and, and struggling your first season. What did you not know that first season? Everything. That <laughs> <laughs> you don't what, know what you don't know, well, Hunter. What, right? What I mean, you, the, yeah. What, what was is, the what was the big thing that? What, was there a linchpin or a tipping point for so, you? So what got me was uh, I knew how to catch a fish. I knew if a fish was in front of me, I could catch it. Mm-hmm. And on the bodies of water I was familiar with, I knew where to find a fish. But again, I had never seen the Mississippi River in my life. The mm-hmm. only river fishing I ever did was in a pair of chest waders with my grandfather in a river that we could walk across, right? Mm-hmm. And now I'm in the Mississippi River going, well, I know they're in eddies. I know they're on current breaks. And I know what those look like standing in my waders. But I'm in a river that's four miles across and 130 miles long. Where do you find an eddy or a current seam or this or that? The other, I was just, I hadn't seen it yet. Mm -hmm. And who has at 24 years old? And even if I did see it, I wasn't thinking when I was 16, you better remember this for that tournament you're going to fish when you're 24 Mm because it wasn't in my plans when I was 16, right? Mm -hmm. So that first year, you pay for education. Just like I paid for a college education, I paid a couple grand back then. It wasn't all that expensive to travel. So I paid a couple grand for an education in walleye fishing. And again, when I got to a body of water that made sense, uh, I'll never forget going to Malax Lake in Minnesota, my rookie season. And I had a really good pre-fish. Conditions changed. I blanked on day one of the tournament. On day two of the tournament, I weighed the two biggest fish caught in the tournament. I figured it out. I found some areas of structure that looked familiar to me. I put the baits where they needed to be, and I caught two giant walleyes and didn't get enough weight to do well in the derby, but it was a moment of, oh my goodness, this guy can do this. I just Mm -hmm. got to do it three days in a row instead of one day. And that's what my dad saw and said, you can't give up. But Mm -hmm. yeah, it was, it was literally every time you turn around, you're like, okay, what am, what's going to smack me in the face now? Right. You go to like you said, the the river for this tournament, and you got to learn how to deal with current. Mm-hmm. You know, I had fished the majority of my adult life in a 28-foot charter boat, not in a 20-foot tournament-style fishing boat. Mm-hmm. Boat control, right? I thought I knew how to keep my boat in one spot. Turns out the only way I could keep it in one spot was to throw an anchor over the side, right? So I had to learn all kinds of stuff. It wasn't just the fishing knowledge. It was, you know, learning where to look, how to hold your boat still. And then the other thing that that smacks you right square in the forehead when you travel the country as a tournament angler is you cannot have a favorite way to catch them. You can't. You can't say, I'm a really good jig fisherman and just go jig fishing. You can't say, I'm a really good trolling guy and just go pull plugs around. You can't. That that doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. Whether you're guiding on one lake or traveling the country, you can't just put a hook and a bait and catch them that way every day of your life. It doesn't work. And Mm -hmm. I was really good at trolling because that's great lakes. And if I could troll, I could catch. When I couldn't troll, I was literally a fish out of water. I mm. mean, how do you rig this? How do you? I mean, I'm learning how to rig stuff that I've never fished with before. And I'm trying to compete with guys that have been fishing their whole life too. 
So it was, yeah. it was tough. It was tough. But I was the youngest guy on tour. I held that record till like three or four years ago. Finally, somebody younger than 24 signed up and fished the whole season. But mm-hmm. you don't expect to beat guys that are twice your age when you're 24 sure. years old. <laughs> you just don't. <laughs> so, so what advice do you give to a 24-year-old who is... Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Go get a job, make a lot of money, get married, have... No, I'm just kidding. No, uh, but what, what, what advice... Let me frame it this way. What <laughs> advice do you give a 24-year-old who is... Whether they're doing tournaments, whether they just started a guide business, whether they just love fishing and they're fishing in their own backyard, and they just want to have more success and they're tired of just coming home to to you know nothing right what advice do you give them to try to really increase their success and i give this advice i I talk to kids around the country a lot one of my marketing partners is a community college in the hometown where i live and i talk to incoming freshmen almost every year for new student orientation i do a lot of speaking at the college and i don't care if it's fishing basket weaving quilting, farming, I don't care what it is. If you have a passion and you want to live the dream, learn to never accept the word no as an answer. And that's all I can tell anybody. You're not going to be good at it from the beginning. You might not be good at it 10 years in. You might never get good at it. But I'm nothing special. I'm nothing special. I'm a solid angler. I try to have an open mind. I try to learn as much as I can learn. But I am not god's gift to the fishing world but i've been doing it since i was well first time i got paid to run deckhand i was 17 years old so i've been getting paid to fish since i was 17 i'm 52 and the only reason that reason i've made it this long is because i don't accept the word no Mm. it's what i want to do i'm going to make it happen and i don't care what you want to chase in life if you have enough determination and grit and stick your nose to the grindstone. You can do whatever you want in this world still Mm -hmm. today. They haven't taken that away from us. And I I will not let anyone that I know that has a dream say no to their dream. It does it suck to get there sometimes Hunter. Absolutely. You want to hear the stories about how many nights I slept in the truck of my, in the cab of my pickup truck or how many nights I had to go get a job and make a hundred bucks to put gas in my truck to drive home from a tournament. Cause I have those stories. They're not mm-hmm. pretty stories. I don't like to tell those stories, but I was not. Once my dad got me over that hump of my rookie year mm-hmm. and I knew I could do it. I just was not going to stop. Not going to stop. That's the best advice I can give anybody. You want to follow a dream? I don't care what it is. Go do it. Don't let mm-hmm. anybody stop you. Just don't take no for an answer. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I've talked with people about on the show is kind of the idea of if you have a dream or you have something you want to do, you have to protect it. What are some things that you see people, you know, mistakes people make that you feel like maybe kills that or derails that, that just kind of as you have chased a dream, there are a lot of people around you who were doing the right. same thing and fell well, off. Yeah, what, there's what a lot. I mean, the, the pro fishing world hunter eats people up. Right. And I'm sure you've seen it. You've been around it enough. I mean, the marriages that end in divorce and guys lose their families and bankruptcies and all that stuff. I would say the first, the the biggest mistake I see people make is the refusal to admit that I might not be going about this the right way. Right. Uh, You're not building a bridge where you can make a, a drawing on a piece of paper and stick to that drawing come hell or high water and build a bridge. If you start this career as professional angling or a fishing guide or outdoor media person or whatever, and you get partway in and your plan obviously isn't working, you better 
be willing to admit I did this wrong and make some adjustments. Mm-hmm. I watch too many people, they get knee deep in, I've got this boat sponsor and I'm, I'm getting my rig at X dollars, but when I'm flipping that boat, I'm losing three or 4,000 bucks a year. Well, maybe you shouldn't work with that company or that's not the right deal. Or maybe you go buy a boat and quit trying to flip them and lose money every year. Or, you know what I mean? There are mm-hmm. so many things that you think you're doing the right thing. And even after it smacks you square in the forehead that it wasn't the right thing, you continue to do it. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and it just gets you further down a rabbit hole and you can't get out of it. So mm-hmm. you got to be flexible. You got to be willing to adjust and you got to look in the mirror at the end of every day and say, did I do the best I could? And am I making the right choices? And if the answer is no, then go find a different way to get it done. Mm-hmm. Right. You just, you have to, I watch so many guys, they come up with a plan and they're try to follow that plan and it doesn't work. And they just mm-hmm. keep following the same plan. And mm-hmm. it's a death spiral. I yeah. mean, you can see it coming and you feel bad for them, but they're unwilling well, to admit what's the, the saying thing. insanity is oh yeah doing the doing same, same thing, thing over and over and expecting, expecting different results, results. yeah right. so right. take me for you you know you're sleeping in the cab of your truck you're learning along the way you're you're fortunate enough to have a, a father who is supportive of you even if you don't have a father that i've found that people who are successful find a way to find people around them supportive oh definitely you know? definitely that's how, how yeah. do you get how do you get from sleeping in your car, struggling to the world championship? And what is the world championship for people like me who are not very, I guess, well, versed in all of this tournament? So how do you get from the beginning to the end? Is uh, And it's another thing that I, when I talk to youth, I, I explain that I don't care what you think your career is. You're in the people business and the relationship business. You're not an engineer. You're not a fishing guide. You're not a pianist. You're not an outdoor writer. Mm-hmm. You're in the people business. Mm-hmm. And if you learn to create the right relationships in your life, you'll go wherever you want to go. Because mm-hmm. none of us got where we are by ourselves. You might pat yourself on the back and say, look what I did. But you didn't do it alone. Nobody does. Mm-hmm. It's, it's impossible, Hunter, to get anywhere by yourself. You can't do it. you got to have help along the way. And I worked really, really hard. Again, Father that was supportive. My dad's day job when he wasn't running the charter boat, he was a purchasing agent for a very, very large company in Ohio. And I got to join him a lot on business outings, right? A day at the ball game, a day at a picnic, or we'd like to take your family out for this event or whatever. And I got to watch how these relationships got built. And it was absolutely amazing to me what people are willing to do for each other if it helps you get where you want to go, mm-hmm. right? I scratch your back, you scratch mine. It's it's for real. Mm-hmm. So I paid a lot of attention when I was young to who I was meeting, what do they do. Maybe they're not the right person today, but you get a feel for that guy that he may be the right person eventually. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, an incredible example is the first outboard trolling motor or the first electric trolling motor I ever got from Minkota Motors. And I hope Tim Price doesn't hear this because it could get us both in trouble. But I'm going to tell the story anyways. <laughs> I'm 24 years old, fishing the tour. My electric trolling motor is rebuilt 14 times. It's not big enough for my boat, but it's all I can afford. That's all I got. Young man, very close to my age, is at all the tournaments as the Minkota support fix-it guy. Mm-hmm. He's a mechanic. He takes motors off boats and fixes them and puts them back on boats. And I'm 
I don't know why we got along really well, probably because we were younger. I'm not sponsored by Minn Kota at this time, mm -hmm. but I'm on this guy constantly. Tim, you got to help me get a motor. You got to help me get a motor. Tim, can you help me get a motor? Johnny, I'm not the guy. I can't help you. Call this guy. Call. I'm like, Tim, you are the guy. Come on, man. You can help me get a motor. Help me get mm -hmm. a motor. Had to be, I think it was the last tournament of my first year. He walks over to me at the rules meeting the night before and he goes, hey, come by my trailer. I got something for you. And he gives me a trolling motor. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, Tim, what is, you said you couldn't get me a motor. And he goes, well, I'm calling that motor Frankenstein because that's not one motor. That's about 12. <laughs> yeah. He said, I got all these motors over the summer and I kept taking parts and I got enough parts from enough motors that were shot that I built you a motor, but don't tell <laughs> anybody where you got it from. That's the old uh, Johnny right. Cash song. Yeah, one piece exactly. Time. Yeah. Well, that guy right now is my pro staff manager for mm. the last 27 years at Minkota Motors. Hmm. I made a relationship with the right guy when I was 24 years old that I have carried through my entire career at Humminbird and Johnson Outdoors. And today I would have to call them, if not my biggest marketing partner, my second biggest, right? Mm. They do that much for me. I work that close with them. Mm. Um, and again, it goes right back to forget learning how to catch more fish. Yeah, you got to catch more fish to compete in tournaments. I'm not saying you don't, but you better be spending as much or more time developing relationships, nurturing relationships, meeting the right people, marketing yourself, building a brand as you do fishing, mm -hmm. or your fishing's gonna get you nowhere. Nobody gets paid. I don't care how good you think you are. Nobody in the fishing industry gets paid to just go catch fish. Mm -hmm. Doesn't happen. You gotta have all the other stuff and those relationships are probably the biggest part of that. So how many times have you won the world championship? Once. Once? That's okay. enough. Once is enough. Once is enough. Okay. <laughs> explain to me, explain to me kind of how that works, like in layman's terms, how somebody gets to, okay, so the, to that. You fish a, a tour, right? Mm -hmm. Or a circuit, however you want to call it. Um, the one, there's a couple in the walleye world. There's the uh, national walleye tour today. There's one called the master's walleye circuit, which is also a pro tour. Those are the only two pro tournament circuits out there. Then there's lower levels that kind of feed into the upper levels. Uh, the one I won was the Masters Walleye Circuit. That's a team tournament circuit. So two guys enter together in, as a team and fish mm -hmm. in the same boat. You fish a complete season, uh, which for us was six tournaments that summer. They take the top, I think it, at that time it was a percentage. It wasn't a number of teams. So it was like the top... 15% of the teams at the mm -hmm. end of the year qualify for the year end championship. So we don't have playoffs. We have one Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. uh, so there were 40 boats, I believe in that tournament and mm -hmm. you fish for three days and the team that comes out on top is the best of the best, right? So this was your tournament field. This was your playoff field and then mm -hmm. that you win that championship. So uh, the only other coveted title that I never did win, uh, and it doesn't bother me that bad, would be Angler of the Year, right? That's where they take your cumulative score for the whole season mm -hmm. and add that up. And, and that would be more like your MVP award or something like that. Mm -hmm. Never was fortunate enough to finish first at the end of the year that way. But winning the world championship, you still get to lay claim for a little while that you're the best in the business. And, sure. And uh, it felt good. It felt really, really good. Uh, it was kind of bittersweet. Uh, the morning and, and this, Hunter, I don't mean to like hijack your, uh, hijack your podcast with anything spiritual or anything that way, but 
some things in life you just cannot explain. And the morning after I won, my grandfather passed away. Mm. Uh, he was sick in a nursing home, should have been dead weeks before, and made it till my father could tell him that I won the world championship. And mm. that meant a lot to me that at least he knew before he went on to the next phase of his existence. And he knew that I won. And uh, kind of a, a really, really freaky part of the story 1978, my grandfather caught the largest walleye registered in the state of Ohio. It weighed 12.73 pounds, and my tournament basket, the last day of that tournament, weighed 12.73 pounds. Wow. That's kind of, I, I get goosebumps. I mean, I'm, I'm like right now, I've got goosebumps just saying that. That's, yeah. That, so that world championship, it meant so much more than just winning the tournament, right? That was, mm -hmm. uh, it was definitely a springboard took me from a guy that everyone knew was a good marketer and, and had a decent career to a guy that now we can put on a poster. We can put him on a package. We can put his name on this. We can write, you endorse products your whole life, but no one ever tells anybody. Then all of a sudden you're world champion and on the back of a spool of line, you see your name and on the back of a lure box, you see your name and on a end cap in a sporting goods store, you see your poster and a name saying, I use these rods and that was kind of cool. It was sure. it was kind of neat to finally get to that level, and it showed that all my hard hard work paid off. And and again, what it meant to my family was even more special than than what it did for me financially. Absolutely, what an amazing story! Thanks for yeah. thanks for sharing that. Um, you know, I'm I'm curious about as somebody who who you know not only am I not super educated in in the tournament scene I'm I'm not educated very well on walleye in general <laughs> so what what does it really take to if you're giving somebody an overview here's how to be successful walleye fishing here's the big pillars of it what are those what are those pillars well they're they're the same pillars as as any fishing uh you number one uh one of my favorite sayings on earth and I'll I'll spin this back to the walleye question in just a second, but I had the pleasure of meeting and knowing Rick Clun in my career, big famous bass fisherman. And one of the things he told me one night, we're eating dinner and he said, Johnny, if you ever want to catch the eagle, you study the mouse. And I'm like, Rick, what on, I mean, Rick, you're a different guy, but what on earth are you talking about? Right? And he goes, no, think about it. You want to catch an eagle, study the mouse. Well, that's translated to my walleye fishing, just like he translated to his bass fishing. Forget your prey. Go find what your prey eats, what, what your prey chases, what your prey does, and then you'll understand him better and be able to catch him. Walleye are no different. Mm -hmm. You have to understand, number one, the body of water you're on, what, what are they going to try to eat? Because that's how we catch them. We don't catch them with a lasso around their tail. We catch them by getting them to eat something. Mm -hmm. And if we're not putting something in the right place that looks like the right thing, they're not going to eat it. So that's the first thing you got to understand is, you know, walleye in the Great Lakes eat rainbow smelt. Uh, walleye in Devil's Lake, North Dakota eat yellow perch. A walleye in Lake Winnebago in Wisconsin eat sheephead, right? I mean, they, they, they have different favorite foods everywhere you go. Mm -hmm. So you have to understand that. Then you have to understand where they live. And then... Uh, be able to make a presentation. Uh, simple rule of thumb is the only way you can catch more fish is to put some presentation in a fish's strike zone and keep it there for the longest amount of time possible. It's that simple. Mm -hmm. It's really not complicated. I don't care if that's a shrimp in the ocean in the Gulf of Mexico or if it's a minnow on a jig in Devil's Lake, North Dakota. 
you've got to be able to put it in the spot where that fish is going to want to eat it and keep it there as long as you possibly can to catch more fish. Are walleye specific to certain things and techniques and all that? Well, I used to think so, but not really. They're really not. I mean, drop shotting is not a world famous walleye technique, but I've caught hundreds of walleye on a drop shot rig, a net mm-hmm. rig that the bass fishermen use all the time. I throw those for walleye all summer long, right? Yeah. I mean, getting wound up in what technique should I use or how do I make this presentation? Uh, that's, I think people overthink it. That's good for those of us that make a living in the fishing industry because that makes people clamor to the shelves mm-hmm. and they buy more tackle and they buy more colors and all that kind of stuff. But Hunter, if you if you can figure out what they eat, mm-hmm. figure out where what they eat lives, and then figure out how to match what they eat and put it in front of that walleye long enough, you're going to catch a bunch of them. So it's that simple. I, I want to keep talking through the pillars, but I want to kind of go down a rabbit trail here that I think is helpful. When when going into a new fishery, uh, you know you've you've been working hard to try to build out what you're doing in the saltwater, which is kind of how we met. What does that process look like of studying a mouse to use the, if you want to catch an eagle, study the mouse? Yeah. So it's so much easier today than it was when I was 24 years old, because we have this wonderful thing called the internet now, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, When I was a kid and I say kid, when I was starting my pro career, uh, the only thing you could do is send a letter. I don't even know if the youngsters listening right now know what a stamp looks like, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you got to send a letter to a chamber of commerce that might be 2,500 miles from your house. It took a week and a half to get there. Hopefully somebody read it and said, yeah, we can direct you to more information about fishing on our lake. And they sent you a big manila envelope full of tourism guides and fishing guide brochures and all that stuff. And then you started if you were fortunate enough to afford long distance back then, and you might even not be old enough. Is he old? I don't even know if Hunter's old enough to remember long distance, but I'm you, familiar with you, the idea. <laughs> you would start making phone calls that cost 60 cents a minute, 70 cents a minute to talk to a bait shop and try to ask, what do they eat? Where should I look? How deep should I write? Mm-hmm. Nowadays you can sit down and say, okay, I want to catch a walleye in Lake X and type it in Google and you won't be able to read it all, right? So it's so easy now. Uh, the things I look at is, I, I like to look at uh, game and fish departments, uh, Department mm-hmm. of Natural Resources, Florida Wildlife Commission, wh- whatever. Because those guys are science geeks, right? And they love to tell people, right? The walleye in this lake eat this, this, and this. And we have surveys and nettings and we know where the population spawns and where it's the most dense. And we know the age class structure and how many big fish and little, you get all that biological data. That's, that's a great place to start. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the most popular lures, right? Uh, bait shops on the internet, fishing clubs, fishing websites that give blogs and all that listening to podcasts, right? I mean, there's mm-hmm. podcasts about my home lake that you can listen to every week. I do fishing seminars live on the internet once a month for Devil's Lake, North Dakota when I'm home. Listen to one of those and hear what a fishing guide on the lake is using and catching mm-hmm. and all that. So uh, it's so easy now to, to study the mouse than it used to be. Yeah. Because before it was try to find a magazine in the library, right? Microfish, microfilm. Mm. I used to sit in my public library looking at microfilm for hours and hours and hours trying to find information that 
that for a lake six states away, what are they going to have that in my public library for? Sometimes I found it, sometimes I didn't. But now it's simple. You can do it on your phone. Don't do it driving, but you can do it on your phone, right? Just mm -hmm. type it in and sitting in an airport somewhere or waiting in the doctor's office and you can start researching how to catch a walleye. And it's, it's pretty good. Most of the information out there has some merit. There's always a couple things that might lead you the wrong way, but and if you really want to know, pick up the phone and give me a call. I'll tell you what you need to know yeah. to go catch a wall. I'm not, I'm not afraid to share. So, all right, that's pillar one. That's helpful. Are there other pillars that you feel like these are these are really important things to understand well, about walleye, walleye fishing? Uh, not so much walleye, but uh, realize there really aren't shortcuts, right? Mm -hmm. You're not going to go just read a couple books, look at some internet stuff, and put your boat in the water and go slam them right away, mm -hmm. right? You're not. Uh, mo no different than what we're going to get to eventually about me coming down to the forgotten coast and go try to catch some redfish or some mangrove snapper or sea bass or whatever it is. There's no, no substitute for time on the water, mm -hmm. no substitute for making mistakes. Cause you don't learn a thing until you do it wrong. Right. If you did it right, every time you tried it, what did you learn? You didn't learn anything. Mm -hmm. You learned by doing it wrong and then making the adjustments to do it right. So, uh, just Gut it out, get out mm -hmm. there, put some stuff in the water. Uh, there are a few basic presentations that I would say a walleye angler should learn to do. Mm -hmm. The first one is fishing with a lead head jig. You better be able to put a jig near the bottom, keep it there, don't get snagged all the time, feel a bite and catch a fish. Lead head jig, whether it's tipped with live bait or a soft plastic tail, you gotta be able to fish a lead head jig. Next thing you want to be able to do is fish with uh, what we would refer to as a spinner rig or a night crawler harness, right? It's a two hook harness with a spinner blade. You drag it around, the spinner goes around in circles. You control it along the edges of structure. It's a little bit easier to keep there because it's heavy, it's weighted. You can fish it at a 45 degree angle, feel the bottom, mm -hmm. but bottom bouncers, the sinkers we use, wire wire armed, snagless, snag. And how, how deep are we talking? Oh, anywhere from six to 56. I mean, they, they have a pretty good range of depth, mm -hmm. but you want to be able to fish with those. You want to understand how a crankbait works and know how to fish a crankbait, mm -hmm. whether it's trolling or casting. And what do you mean how it works? Because I'm thinking about, I what, feel like I understand how How, how works, deep but... does it dive? Okay. Right. When you use this pound test line, it dives this deep. When you use this pound test line, it might not dive that deep. It might dive deeper. When I cast it, it troll, it goes this deep. When I troll it, it goes this deep, mm. right? What speed range does this crankbait trigger more fish? What speed, what range does that crankbait trigger more fish, right? Which lures work better in cold water? Which one's better in warm water? But just having an understanding of what crankbaits or, yeah. or plugs do. And then the last thing you need to be able to do is present live bait in a manner that it looks real, mm -hmm. right? Uh, whether you want to call it a live bait rig or uh, fish it on a jig or I don't care what you call it, but the days when you can't get them to eat an artificial uh, walleye tournaments still allow live bait. Uh, fishing for fun for walleye revolves around live bait. But if it doesn't look natural and alive, much like any other place you fish live bait, you're not going to catch a walleye on it. They're mm -hmm. smarter than we give them credit for. So those would be the four things, right? Yeah. Learning to fish a jig, learning to fish a spinner, fishing live bait, fishing a crankbait. When I do my walleye fishing schools, those are the four things I talk about an hour of each one at the before lunch. That's one of my classes that I teach across the country. So those are the four pillars or cornerstones that I throw out there as walleye fishing. 
Okay, that's helpful. And then, so we go to lunch. What's after lunch? After lunch is depending on where I'm at. Uh, sometimes I'll do uh, specific bodies of water if mm-hmm. that's requested. A lot of times I jump into marine electronics. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, oh boy, we could do a whole other podcast, Hunter. Yeah, on marine and, I, and I do have, I do have, <laughs> I do have questions on that. I don't want to go yeah. there yet because yeah. I've gone there with you a little yeah. bit. Yeah. I've gone there enough to know. I don't yeah. want to go there yet. Yeah, but with um, so so talk to me about your most recent. So you you've you know, you've traveled around, you fish a lot of different mm-hmm. bodies of water. You've, you've chased different species of fish, but now you're in a season of life where you've come down here to the forgotten coast. Mm-hmm. I met you through my dad. Yep. You developed a relationship with my dad. And now you're doing this kind of saltwater. I'm, I'm going to call you a saltwater snowbird. I am. Um, I am. And so you're coming down here and you're learning this fishery, this style, and there are some different elements. Oh, yeah. I'm curious, what has that process been like? What, what have you... So what's that process been like? And what do you feel like is something that you brought in from your northern freshwater world that maybe is, to use, I don't know if it's the right word, but an advantage that you have because of your experience that somebody like me from the south might not have? Well, first of all, it's been an absolute incredible experience so far. Uh, Meeting your dad was a stroke of genius or luck. I'm going to go with genius Mm -hmm. because I don't like to say luck. But literally found him on the internet. I mean, it's not like we had Mm -hmm. a connection before, uh, has been a great teacher and offers a lot of encouragement, but never did I think at age 50 something that I would be having a pep in my step and a bounce again to go fishing. Right. Cause Mm -hmm. let's face it. It kind of turns into wash, rinse, repeat. When you guide on the same lake day after day, after day, after day, it's, you know, where you're going to go, you know what you're going to do going to go to this spot i'm going to put this down we're going to catch our 10 then we're going to go over there and catch five more and then we'll go over here and try to catch a big one and i can tell you right now what i'm going to do on fourth of july because you just know so this has been a a little spark right it's ignited Mm -hmm. a little bit of fire that i didn't think went away but it had definitely been smoldering so that's kind of cool um advantages that i have coming here uh, i don't know if it's necessarily from being from the north or being a freshwater angler but i feel it's from being a tournament fisherman is i've learned to look at a map or a body of water and not see the name right i don't care what lake it is Mm. i don't care if it's the ocean or a lake or what it is in between a drop-off is a drop-off structure is structure right? Current edges are current edges. A bend in the river is a bend in the river. It doesn't matter if I'm in the Carabelle River down here fishing for redfish, or if I'm in the Missouri River in Bismarck fishing for walleye, they're going to be in the same spot. They're going to be out of the current on the edge of the current near deep water. That's where fish live. That's where they feed. Mm -hmm. And guess what? They do. They do down here, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's been a lot of fun going out, looking at maps, looking at my depth finder, looking at my GPS and putting it all together and go, gee, I wonder why there's not a fish here. And guess what? There is, mm-hmm. there is now. Do you catch them the same way? No, I had to learn how to hook a shrimp on a hook. I shrimp was something we ate. You didn't use it yeah. for bait, which is kind of cool down here. Cause you wouldn't want to eat my bait for dinner at home, but yeah. down here, if you don't catch them, just eat your bait. You're, you're in good shape. <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, some of the things that's been really challenging and it goes back to, learning the mouse. Uh, I never had to catch my own bait before ever. Right. You went to the bait shop, you bought a dozen worms, you bought a dozen leeches and you had live bait to go fishing. Mm-hmm. Well, I come down here and yeah, you can buy shrimp. And I think on occasion you might be able to buy a pen fish or two, but I haven't seen it yet. So 
your dad told me a little bit about how to put a trap out and do this. And mm. I went to the place that manufactures the traps and they were bored that day and they gave me an hour lesson and how to put a trap out. And you go out in the Gulf of Mexico and you're like, okay, just put it on a grass bed. Sure. That's real easy. There's miles of it here. How do you, how do you mm. find where? And through trial and error and thinking about fishing and fishing knowledge and put them on the edge of the grass, not right in the middle, put them close to deep water, not real shallow, right? I pieced it together and mm -hmm. guess what? Bait fish here live in the same spots bait fish do at home. So yeah. it all it all came together. But I again, I don't necessarily think it's an advantage of being a freshwater angler. It's being an angler that for 30 years of my life, tournament fishing, you would open a map and cover up the name of the lake because I don't care what lake I'm on right i don't i care where the drop off is i care where the mud flat is i care where the weed edges are mm -hmm. you find those spots you're going to find fish and it's it's held true down here and i know your dad and i spend some time in the boat together and he'll start telling me all these specifics about this fish and that fish and this fish and that fish and i look at him and i say chip it's just fishing mm -hmm. <laughs> and he i catch him chuckling every time i say it because it is it's now granted a grouper and a largemouth bass are not the same they're not, but they kind of are. They kind of are. Mm -hmm. So it, I just go fishing and, uh, I've got my backside handed to me. I've been undermatched with my equipment more than once because I didn't realize the power and strength of some of the fish I've hooked into. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I've learned a lot that way. I'm still making adjustments and it'll take a while to be where I need to be, but it's mm -hmm. been fun getting there and, and I'm loving it. I'm loving every minute of it. So I want to talk more about what making adjustments has looked like for you, because I think there's a lot of people who just never make those adjustments or, or they're, they're making the wrong adjustments or the wrong steps, but a little bit more about maps. Talk me through me and you are sitting down. We're about to fish a new area. What is your process? You cover, you cover it up. You're looking for ledges, but give some advice on how to think about looking at maps and kind of pre-planning your fishing from that standpoint. So, yeah, I, uh, again, I've, I've taught several classes on this. It's like you are leading me right down the right trail, Hunter. This is awesome. You're a good interview guy, right? You make it easy. Uh, you have to have a plan when you go to the lake every day. You, you can't just, or the Gulf or the river or wherever mm -hmm. you're going, you can't just put your boat in and say, we're going to drive around until we see three other boats and fish next to them. That's not how you catch fish. And I like to fit when I'm going out just fishing. I don't have anything specific, right? I'm not going after mangroves on structure or I'm not going after sight fishing reds, right? That's a whole different thing. When you have a very specific task for the day, that's a whole different story. Mm -hmm. But when you're just going fishing, I just want to go out. I want to putz around. I want to catch some fish for dinner. I want to have a fun day catching fish. You got to have a game plan. And that game plan needs to include not one type of spot but a series of different areas to go investigate mm -hmm. uh if you tell yourself i'm going to go out today and only fish rock piles and you fish 12 rock piles well you're either going to catch fish in 12 spots or you're not going to catch fish at all because all you did is fish the same thing over and over and over that day mm -hmm. uh, if you tell yourself all i'm going to do is fish grass flats and you fish 13 different areas on a grass flat and you don't catch a fish in the first three, you're probably not going to catch them in the last 10. Yeah. Right. So I tell people when you're looking at your map, find an area of grass and fish that 
Find an area of sand and fish that. Find an area of rock and fish that. Find a drop-off or a transition or an edge and fish that. Because what we're looking for ultimately are patterns, right? Uh, a pattern in fishing is defined as a set of circumstances that put fish in an exact location. That's a pattern. The pattern might be a rock pile that comes within six feet of the surface within 30 yards of 12 feet of water on the north shore of the lake catching the south sun with the wind hitting it from the east. That's a set of conditions that put fish there. And then if you can match that set of conditions somewhere else, there's pretty good chance there's going to be fish there too. So when I'm looking at a map the first time, I'm trying to find what appears to be fish holding areas. And that's a whole, that's, that's a whole other podcast of what is a fish holding area. But we'll use the Gulf for an example, right? I want to fish a dock or two. Then I want to fish some sand spots inside grass for a while. Then I want to fish some structure in the bay. And then I want to go fish a, a, a sandbar, right? So there's four different types of spots. One of those four is probably going to produce fish. Mm -hmm. Once I catch fish on that set of circumstances, I'm going to go back to my map, whether it's on paper or on my electronic chart, and I'm going to try to find another set of conditions that looks like the one I'm looking at mm -hmm. now. And then when these fish quit biting on this one, maybe I can go to another one that matches that and catch more fish over and over and over, right? Shipwrecks are easy. I found a wreck, I caught them, I'll go to another wreck, right? They're kind of marked on maps, they're kind of easy to find. The ones that get tough are when you're looking at the edge of a sand flat or the edge of a grass flat. Mm -hmm. And you're like, wow, what made this edge special? Because mm -hmm. there's miles and miles and miles of edge, right? Well, was it on the tip of a point? Was it an inside cup? Was it an isolated grass patch? Or was it connected to another one that was really big? Mm -hmm. You have to start asking yourself all those questions and drill down till you can figure out what put those fish there. Sometimes it clicks, sometimes it doesn't. When it clicks, you have the, those days we dream of, right? Everywhere I went on the grass, I caught 100 trout today. It was awesome, right? Mm -hmm. The days it doesn't click, you go home scratching your head saying, I'm selling this boat, I'm selling my rods, I'm selling my reels, I'm getting yeah. out of this game, right? Yeah. It happens. It, no matter how long you fish, you're going to get beat sometimes. But that's kind of how I look at spots and maps. And, and that's what I say. I don't care what the name of the lake is. I yeah. just want to find... The, the areas, the, the conditions that put fish there. Yeah. And one of the differences a little bit from the style that you predominantly do and I do is, you know, you're dictated by, uh, if I'm trying to sight fish, I'm dictated right. by like, where well, can I yeah, actually do exactly. that? And so there's, there's a sunlight element to mm -hmm. that. There's water clarity element to that. There's some wind or whatever, right. but that's still all part of those conditions. But yeah. Right? That's and so what I'm curious equation. about though is when you start looking at all those conditions, you have your, your large conditions of water, Tim, mm -hmm where it's at in the tide or, or water level of right. your fresh water, yeah. you know, you have those big things, but you start looking at it and you start to have so many pieces. It's hard to keep all those things in your head. Oh, do yeah. you have a way that you record all that information? Uh, do you just I do keep logs okay. often, uh, not every day when I tournament fished, I was a note taking fiend. Uh, I can actually show you, uh, I'd be glad to send you an email of the log books that I build when I was tournament fishing mm -hmm. and every fish I caught, I wrote down in a book and I had, I don't know, 15 or 20 data points for every fish, wind direction, right? Time of day, water temperature, water clarity, what kind of structure it was on, what lure did I catch it on? What color, how fast was I trolling? Was I casting? Right. I kept track of all that. Mm -hmm. Every fish I caught, I kept track of. 
And that increased my tournament success dramatically. Now, I don't get that detailed when I'm guiding and, and fishing for fun. Probably should, wouldn't hurt, but boy, you, you just get tired at the end of the day and writing it all down. Uh, but I do take notes in the boat. I talk into my phone sometimes and listen at the end of the day so I can remember exactly what happened. But yeah, it's uh, the deeper you dig into each spot, the, the more successful you're going to be, right? Sometimes you can get away with, it was 12 feet deep, wind blowing into shore and the water temperature was 63 degrees. And some days that's the only three pieces of information you need to find another spot. Mm. Other days man, you got to get down to the nitty gritty, right? Not just rock, but rock that was this size or Mm -hmm. right. Not just mud bottom, but this much mud bottom or this deep of water. Or like you said, water clarity. Yeah. I could see the fish, but I couldn't catch them when the water was this clean. And Mm -hmm. when the water got a little more color, I caught more. Mm -hmm. Right. So it seems no big deal. Oh, gee, it's just a little dirtier, but you and I both know sometimes the littlest detail makes all the difference in the world for Mm -hmm. a successful day. And people ask me all the time, what, what do you think the biggest difference between the pro angler and the weekend guy for success? What's the difference? And my answer has always been the, the professional angler doesn't dismiss anything as circumstances or luck, right? I don't know how many times I've seen a guy say, Oh, I got lucky to catch that one. Right. Or I I can give you a lot of scenarios I've used in teaching. Uh, You're casting a lure towards a dock and the lure doesn't go where you want it to. It lands 12 feet from the dock and you start reeling it in twice as fast as normal because you want to make another cast and you get bit and you land the fish and you high five and you put it in the live well and you wind up to make the next cast. And 99.9% of the people listening are going to make their next cast right towards the dock because they thought they made a bad cast the cast before. Mm-hmm. But how can you call it a bad cast if you just caught a fish? Professional angler fishing for a living is not going to call that a bad cast. You know where my next cast is going? Right where I caught that fish. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to reel twice as fast as I did before because that's probably what triggered that fish. But the average angler dismisses that as... Oh, I got lucky. That mm-hmm. was an accident. I should have never caught that fish, mm-hmm. right? There's no wrong way to do it in fishing. If there's a fish on the end of your line, when you're done, you did yeah. it right. So do it again, repeat it. Don't tell yourself that was the wrong way to catch it. Mm-hmm. Right. I made a post the other day on Facebook about uh, free lining for mangroves and we caught a limited grouper. Mm-hmm. And one of the guys on Facebook challenged me and said, you don't catch grouper freelining shrimp on structure. That doesn't work. And I put back on, I was kind of having a bad day and I put back on Facebook. So was I supposed to throw them all back? Cause I caught them the wrong way. Yeah. I ain't catching the wrong way. I had a limited keeper grouper. I don't care how I caught them. Do it again. Right. Mm-hmm. If you freeline a shrimp and a grouper eats it and you want to catch another grouper, I wouldn't put a sinker on and fish on the bottom. I'd freeline another shrimp. Yeah. Because you're going to catch another grouper, right? So I think that's a big difference. Yeah, that's a great point too. Or if you get too married, back to getting too married to a technique or a way of doing it, well, you know, I'm going to keep doing the sinker because that's what people do. Right. And that's what I've done in the past. Well, it's (laughs) not working right now. Right. Yeah, but that's that's the way that you do it. Right. You know, so I think that trying to give yourself freedom. Some of the people that I fished with that I felt like were, were some of the best anglers, you know, they're they're not afraid to switch stuff up. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've fished with people too, where I made a 30 minute ride. They hopped up on the boat. 
they pulled for two minutes and they said, this is, this isn't right. <laughs> and then they got back down and made a 20 minute ride into a lot of people. They're so antsy. They're just like, Oh, we're already here. Right. You know, you hear that phrase in fishing, right? They're already here. Kind of like the lucky thing, you know, we're already here. We just might as well fish it. And, uh, sometimes I might do that with certain people just to experiment or play around, right. but you know, that, that's the type of thing too. They're not afraid to, oh, yeah. to change it, do it different. I it's think not uncommon great... hunter at home guiding walleye in Devil's Lake, North Dakota. We'll pull in on a spot. I'll make three casts before my guide clients even get their jig unhooked from their rod and go, well, time to go. Yeah. And they're like, say what? I'm like, no, they're not here. Trust me. It, I know that hole. If there was one in there and you don't catch it in three casts, you're not going to catch it. We're going. And yeah. you do that four or five times on a guide trip and your customers are looking at you like, what kind of ride are you taking us on? And then you pull into the spot and catch one on your first cast and they have pandemonium for three hours afterwards. And then they finally mm -hmm. go, oh, okay, I get it now, right? I get it. So yeah, I'm right there with you, man. You, yeah, let her rip, go fish. So speaking of seeing fish, you're a lot of the people that I've interviewed because it's predominantly been saltwater flats fishing, GPSs are if anything, just to help you not run into stuff while you're <laughs> hear going you. places and you use your eyes a lot because you have a lot of physical landmarkers mm -hmm. and you need to use your eyes a lot. And even somebody that was really influential to me, uh, when I was learning how to navigate a skiff was like, you need to learn to use your eyes cause you know, your GPS could go out right. or you don't want to be crippled by that. You know, you hear stories about people also looking down their screens and run into well, yeah, boats and other, all sorts of stuff. Right. So I've had a wide range of people on the show who, some of them are like, I don't like GPSs. I don't think people should even have them. Now they're not talking about grouper fishing because right. those guys will hop on grouper boats and, and, get, and <laughs> be grateful for GPS. Right. But there's a little bit of this sentiment. There's this this mentality of, you know, the technology can take away from the experience. That's some people's argument on that. Uh, most people I interview, myself included, have GPS, use GPS. Somebody who knows how to use GPS well probably say you're not even using your unit, <laughs> maybe the, the right way. You know, you're getting right. ten percent of out of out of that tool, and then um, and then you have somebody who okay now I have someone who does seminars and is somewhat of an advocate for it. Give me give me the case. Why should people consider using electronics, and what should they consider when making? those purchases and those decisions. Yeah. So I'll, uh, I'll start the conversation. So everyone knows up and up before I start, I'm a Johnson outdoors, hummingbird, Minn Kota guy, right? So I'll speak from that perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, I think all the brands build pretty good stuff, right? Uh, it's what you're comfortable with. It's what I'm comfortable with. I trust it to the end of the world, but I want to clarify before we start that that's where I'm coming from, just so mm -hmm. no one gets their feathers ruffled during <laughs> conversation, right? Uh, why should you have it? Well, GPS uh, safety, number one, right? Uh, GPS has come so far in 30 years. I remember the first one I got was a gray screen that left a little breadcrumb trail so you knew where you were. That's mm -hmm. all it was. There was no mapping. There was no, It was just a gray screen. If you learned how to do it right, it could help you get back and forth to the boat ramp safely and navigate shallow water areas when you went through it the first time the right way, right? It didn't tell you the right way, but if you made it through a spot and you could follow your breadcrumb trail home, you wouldn't crash. But nowadays with the advent of, uh, I use Coastmaster maps in my Humminbird and the 
the bottom contours are spot on. They're absolutely incredible. It helps me find fishing spots. It keeps me safe, right? There's so many things I can do as far as saving waypoints and naming waypoints. So I'm not just pulling up to a spot. If you name it properly, you know what fish you caught there or what kind of bottom it is or, mm-hmm. right? So it takes a lot of the guesswork out. And I get it. If you don't want to use it, you don't want to use it. That's okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, quite honestly, if I'm fishing in a marsh that's only two feet deep and I can see 80% of the fish I'm catching, I can understand the argument for not using it. But it doesn't hurt to have it then sure. either, right? So what? You save a few waypoints of... The fish aren't any, they're not in any more jeopardy of being caught because I have a GPS and can get back to the spot. I still have to get them to eat. When it comes to sonar, holy cow, that's a loaded question right mm-hmm. there. You know, traditional 2D down looking sonar is great for not running yourself on shore. You can see the bottom, you can see changes in the bottom, you can see bottom uh, hardness change or composition change, right? You can find that living bottom, if you know exactly what you're looking for, you can find the limestone or the rock ledges or the sand. But when you start adding things like side imaging and and live sonar and 360 and all that kind of stuff, uh, I'm not going to say that it catches any more fish for me. It makes me more efficient with my time, which gives me more time to focus on fishing. Uh, a perfect example is going out and, and chumming for fish on structure. Uh, you go out without the technology I have, and you have no choice but to look at a waypoint, position your boat, throw some chum or some baits in the water and watch where they drift and try to visually adjust your boat with the current and the tide to get it to drift right over the structure. And there's a lot of guys that are really, really good at that. I'm not because I've never done it before, but I have 360 degree imaging on my boat and I can go out and stop my boat and put my chum bag over the side and see the direction of the chum off of my boat and look at my 360 imaging and say, I need to move 23 feet that direction and that chum's going to go right over the structure. So now instead of a rookie spending two hours making finite adjustments to get my chum in the right spot, I can do it in 10 minutes mm-hmm. and spend that hour and a half trying to master the technique I want to use that day to catch more fish. So are they cheating? Eh, I don't think they're cheating, but they definitely save time. Mm-hmm. And saving time looking for fish means I can fish for the fish more often than just looking for the fish. Mm-hmm. I think that's a huge advantage. Uh, forward-facing sonar, right? In, in the freshwater world right now, same thing, right? You shouldn't be allowed to use it in tournaments. Shouldn't be allowed to use it for this. Shouldn't be allowed to use it for that. It's cheating. And I can see where someone that doesn't have it feels like I don't have the advantage of the guy that does have it. But you still got to get them to bite. Just because you know where they're at doesn't mean they're going to eat what you throw at them. You still got to get them to bite. You still have to convince that fish to react to your lure or your bait Mm -hmm. or whatever you're doing. But it does make a difference when you're not wasting casts, right? A perfect example was in the bay here down in Carabell a couple days ago. A buddy and I went out and we caught four big bull redfish on a piece of structure in about two hours. We made six casts to those fish because we knew right where they were. Mm-hmm. We knew right where they were. 
And why would you make 30 casts in a big fan if you know the school of fish is at three o'clock off your bow mm-hmm. and they're 45 feet from your boat? Why, why cast all the way around your boat if you know they're there? Now, mm-hmm. would we have caught those fish eventually? Yeah, probably we would have. But we had had to fan cast the whole area instead of watching our sonar and paying attention. And well, gee, they're right over there. Just throw it out there. When you catch four redfish and six casts, it gives you a lot of time to do other things. Right? Yeah. So that, that's where I see the sonar fitting in. Uh, you still got to work at it. You still got to catch them. But man, it sure does create some shortcuts. I know your dad and I have had fun in the boat together, driving around looking for ledges and live bottom and all that yeah. stuff. And years ago, you were guessing, right? You'd look at your 2D sonar and go, I think that's live bottom. It looks a little fuzzy down there. Well, mm-hmm. now you put side imaging on and you can put the waypoint right where the live bottom is and go back there the next day and fish for your sea bass or grunts or whatever you want to catch there and have fun. You want to find a ledge, you drive around and you put waypoints on the ledges and you go back the next day and troll down the ledge and catch a few grouper, right? So they're shortcuts. Uh, they will help you catch. They will help you catch more fish just because, like I said, you get to spend more time fishing instead of looking. So mm-hmm. that's where I see them fitting in. They're not going away. Yeah. So you might as well embrace them. Right. It's, it's a yeah. technology that I don't care how hard everybody complains. It's not the Florida is not going to come out. I mean, I love your governor, but Ron's not going to come out one day and say, okay, from now on, you can't use side imaging when you go fishing in the state of Florida. That's not ever going to happen. Yeah. So you can either hate it or you can embrace it and use it to catch more fish. And I'm telling you, you might as well just embrace it and get on board and, yeah. and, and go have fun with it. Right. That's, yeah, I think I think the conversation always has to exist around it. And as somebody younger, I I've not been around enough technology advancement over my life, you know, to to even know kind of how these things have shook out and played out and how the conversations are outside of just talking and learning people who've come before me. It's it, it feels like, you know, every generation has new pieces and new advancements and the older generation often pushes against it. Sometimes the young generation maybe pushes against it too. And, you know, whether that's just having any type of sonar to this type of sonar to, and then you start having things like in, in, you know, cobia fishing, redfish, tarpon, whatever, where now all of a sudden people are using drones and they're going, well, how's that different? (laughs) And and there's... And up north in the freshwater, it's underwater cameras, Yeah, That's a big deal in freshwater. You drop a camera down and spin it around in circles and you can see the fish. Yeah, It's like, whoa, it shouldn't be legal you to have a camera. Well, and there are certain things like... (laughs) <laughs> but but to be fair, I think there's certain pieces of technology that were like, okay, you gotta. This is gonna be too effective. Like right. if 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 I was going to some areas that you fished in electro fishing, yeah, I said, well, I'm just right. using technology here, exactly. Johnny. I yeah. mean, you could yeah. if you want to do this dynamite, too. and you, you go, well, dynamite. you know, hundred, it's pretty hard on the fish, <laughs> yeah. you know, and it's right. like there has to be this. Right. There has to because we're still doing this also because it's fun, right? And we do want to eat exactly. some fish, and we want to. And so I get to you know, so obviously that's extreme, right? right. That but. Yep. At the same time, I think there's some merit. There's there's a phrase that um, in in turkey hunting that I think is good that you know sometimes the turkey wins. Oh yeah, and that's okay. And I say that about fishing. I and, say it a lot. I and say so that I a think lot. the technology the conversation wins, right? is you right. know I think the technology conversation is like you know where people draw the lines is going to mm-hmm. be different. Right. And what people choose to personally do is going to be different. Exactly. I think you got to be really you know the fishing community needs to be slow to to over moralize mm-hmm. or over, you know, make it an over the top issue sometimes with certain pieces of technology. And 
But of course, if I was coming to, you know, you saw me on docks and I was electroshocking <laughs> redfish and scooping them and going, Johnny, hey, good to yeah. see you, man. You know, you're right. like, hey, being a little hard on the resource there, buddy. <laughs> yeah. You know, oh, uh, you're only allowed to keep you one know. hunter. I don't yeah, care. yeah. But, uh, you know, maybe a little hard on these fish to be hitting them every <laughs> right. day with that. And, right. but, you know, we laugh about that. But I think the conversation, the conversation's always good. And I think right. it, uh, to the, what my experience has been is the way that people handle that always stems from what their motive is mm-hmm. to, to fishing. Exactly. And, and so, yeah, you're I, not going to stop a game hog no matter what the rules are. Yeah. Right. If there's someone that wants to go out and slaughter redfish every day, they're going to do it, whether they're using side imaging or electro fishing or anything. In yeah. Game, right. So, uh, I don't know. I, I enjoy it. it it's fun for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am not, I, I'm 52 years old. I'm not super techno geeky guy. I'm mm-hmm. not, I learned to use it. I learned to use it that it fish, fits my fishing style. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people that use it much more than I do, and a lot of people that use it a lot less than I do. And at the end of the day, when we're having a cold adult beverage, all of us seem to get out of the fishing day what we wanted to get out of it. So, you know, my role with the company I represent is to help people learn it as well as they can. Mm-hmm share with them my experience and hopefully they use it and get a little more efficient at it. But if they choose not to, I'm not going to tell the guy, I mean, Hunter, how many fish get caught from the bank with a red and white bobber? They got no depth finder. They got no nothing. They throw a worm out with a bobber and they sit there till it goes under and they reel it in and they have a blast. And that's kind of what makes fishing so cool, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you want to have a drone and look for redfish that you can't see without it, you can. And if you want to sit on the end of the dock at the ho-hum RV park and throw a bobber out there and wait for it to go under, you can. Mm-hmm. And you can have fun doing it both ways, which is great. That's why I fish. Because yeah. you can, I don't care if you're rich, poor, purple with yellow polka dots on your skin. I don't care who you are. You can go anywhere you want and enjoy fishing at whatever level you want to do it. And who am I to tell you you're wrong? Yeah. I'm just glad you're fishing. <laughs> yeah. And, and my, my approach has been at least the past few years and trying to think through it as the best way to try to protect those resources too, are to try to help encourage people, Hey, do this to have fun. Mm-hmm. It's not just about, right. you know, you, you use the phrase game hog, but like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not just about you going out there and every time having maximum, right. You know, meat, right. It's about you learning to have fun and enjoying it and being mm-hmm. out there and asking the right questions yep. and learning and talking to people. Um, but Johnny man, super helpful. I, I mean, there's so many different rabbit trails we could go down on, on everything. <laughs> You're just from, getting, I'm just getting, yeah, warmed just up, getting dude. warmed up, but, uh, this man, again tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely have to do it again. And uh, a lot of fun sitting down here in your perspective. And I just appreciate the time that you gave and it's been and fun, man. Appreciate look forward it. to learning more. Thank you. Not a problem. Thank you for listening to the Captain's Collective. Please continue to help us out by spreading the word and sharing the show. This season, we invited Leon Meitzen to help create some awesome music for the show. As a fan of the podcast and a fellow Floridian, this team-up was a no-brainer. And we put together a day of fishing and music thanks to our mutual friends at Skinny Water Culture. Here's the live recording of his song, Bars, Beds, and Cards, recorded right here on Florida's beautiful Forgotten Coast. Where there's too many people in this town 
There's not enough space to go around I've been working, I've been saying I've been training Well, I think I'd see Jesus Christ He's hiding in between the neon lights In the ballrooms, in the bedrooms, in the corridors So Once in a while, it's fun to go with like just full-blown redneck on these fish. This is like high-tech cane pole fishing right here. From the white sandy beaches to the crystal blue waters, enjoy the best fishing Panama City Beach has to offer during Chase in the Sun, Sundays at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. On Mondays, head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! oh. Look at Ooh. that belly. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.